Welcome to the third episode of the Scleroderma Education Podcast. Created by the Scleroderma Association of BC, this podcast aims to increase awareness and provide education for medical students and curious patients. Through this series, we hope to help our listeners gain a holistic understanding of scleroderma by learning from both patients and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Valerie Doyon. I'm a third-year UBC medical student and board member on the Scleroderma Association of BC. It's now my pleasure to introduce our two guests for this episode. Dr. Aaron Brown is a plastic surgeon with a special interest in scleroderma. He works at the VCH Mary Pack Scleroderma Clinic, as well as at the St. Paul's Hospital Scleroderma Lung Clinic. Diagnosed in 2006, Kelly Grant is the patient living with scleroderma, and she volunteers her time as the Scleroderma Association of BC rep for Chilliwack. Welcome both. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on today. So scleroderma is an autoimmune disease with a wide degree of involvement. On this episode, we'll focus on some common features of scleroderma, such as calcinosis and digital ulcers. We're also going to discuss surgical treatments for scleroderma. So to kick us off, Kelly, since you have kind of an uncommon form of scleroderma, could you start us off by telling us the type of scleroderma that you have? Um, My official diagnosis is limited systemic sclerosis with morphia, which is atypical. And I was originally diagnosed in uh, 2006 with scleroderma with morphia. Yeah. And how, how did that diagnosis come about? The diagnosis came about actually through the morphia um, about, I don't know, 16 summers ago, I noticed on my right shin, uh, a darkened patch. And I didn't think too much of it right away, because I have olive colored, colored skin, and I tan easily. And so I thought, okay, well, something's gotten darker than usual. And then it, I became more concerned when it um, got larger and was became itchy. And I showed it to my mom, who was who's a retired nurse. And she goes, mm, I think you better go get that checked out. And so I went to my family doctor, and she wasn't too sure what it was either. So then I got, we was referred to a dermatologist. And so I went, when I went to the dermatologist, he examined, you know, my, the darkened patch on my leg. And he actually looked at my hands and looked at my fingers and looked at my nail beds and was checking out everything else. And then he was kind of talking about, and then he asked me for a a history of, of my medical history. And he asked me about, you know, and I talked about, I had Raynaud's before I had Raynaud's for a couple of years before that. Uh, I also had just started with some acid reflux I'd had and things like that. And then he's kind of looking around, he's looking at everything, he goes, I, I think that you have um, scleroderma with morphia. And he says, but you know, I highly suggest you go and see a rheumatologist about this. And then he goes, and don't run to the internet to look it up, <laughs> which of course I did. Um, because I thought I was just going in for like a dermatology, you know, get a cream, put it on and it would go away. And that wasn't the case. So I was pretty shocked. Uh, since then, I do take someone with me to all appointments. <laughs> uh, but really, fortunately for me, uh, that happened a while ago. And I, you know, he was very knowledgeable dermatologist. I was very fortunate. So I was diagnosed pretty early on. And so I got, you know, treatment pretty early on. So I feel very fortunate about that. Right. And in terms of the actual patch of morphia that you had, um, is there, was there any other kind of an odd appearance to it or how could uh, medical learners thought that this was not just 
another dark patch. I don't know. I didn't think too much of it. I, like I say, until it got darker and and then a bit more itchy, and it started. And then later on, though, it started changing, and things got bigger and longer. But at the beginning, it was harder to tell, especially if you have a darker skin tone. I think if you had maybe lighter skin tone, it might have been easier. But right. yeah. Right. And so right, right away, initially, it sounds like you were diagnosed with the morphia. Um, did you get any sort of uh, treatment for it in terms of topical creams or light therapy? Eventually, yes, I had, I got, I used um, like cortisone steroids, creams on it, ointments, which helped a bit with the, with the, um, the redness. Um, I did get UVA, but that was after it actually opened up. I'd had, they started with the UVA treatment. I had that for about six months. I think I tried that. Okay. Yeah. Patients with systemic sclerosis have inherent challenges to surgical interventions, such as an immunocompromised state, often compounded by immunosuppressive medications. So if the skin over a surgical site is affected, then there can be poor circulation, compromise in inelastic skin, often with ulceration and et cetera. Dr. Brown, could you please speak to this and tell us how this affects your general surgical approach? So for instance, if a scleroderma patient accidentally sustains a laceration requiring sutures or needs an appendectomy. I look after many people who are on immunosuppression. Uh, look after lots of people um, with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and other conditions like that. <clears throat> so in general, we just have to try our best to mitigate the risks for them. There's not really much you can do. Uh, the scleroderma is going to be what the scleroderma is going to be. And if someone's on medications, you have to make a call whether or not there's greater risk in stopping them or continuing with them. And that's something that I do in conjunction with the rheumatologist, because every person will respond differently to cessation of their medications. So some people do, they tolerate it very well, where others will have a great flare. Now, um, uh, so that's my general approach is to, to try to be collaborative with the patient and their uh, other care providers, and just have to do what you have to do, and then try to plan that things could be challenging and try to uh, um, you know, manage it accordingly. When you say things are challenging, do you mean like the, um, the wound healing later on or the actual, does it change anything about uh, the surgical process? Like for instance, um, no, like, I mean, you know, I think my secondary intention. No, I would say I try to plan. So, you know, I giving a very specific example. So let's say I'm doing vascular reconstruction for someone's hands. Uh, I conduct that in the same way as I would uh, otherwise. Uh, however, if I'm operating on somebody who has deformities in their finger and I'm trying to correct them and, and operate and do um, surgical management of the joints, I specifically plan my incisions in a way that addresses the very, very skin, thin skin over the dorsum of their joints. So you... you if possible, you try to plan, and if not, you just try to do your best to damage the tissues as little as possible while, while doing the surgery. Okay, and so before we kind of dive into specific surg surgical management for scleroderma, um, I wanna place a general kind of disclaimer that the evidence for these surgeries is limited from my understanding, um, but Dr. Brown, I'd like to hear your thoughts on general surgical management in scleroderma? 
So I'll make a I'll make a general comment here because again I look after a lot of people who have systemic conditions, whether it's scleroderma or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. These are all systemic conditions. Surgery cannot fix the condition, and it's very very important that patients and surgeons understand this, so that what we're trying to do is manage secondary problems um, from those conditions. And that if you have that in mind, then the, the surgery that you can do sometimes is incredibly helpful, but it is not, well, for the most part, it is not reconstructive surgery, it is salvage surgery. You are trying to manage the problems that have occurred as a result of the disease. And if you have that in mind, they can be very successful. The surgeries themselves sometimes may be morbid or not what a person would desire, but they can be helpful if you have the right framing of what it is that you're able to achieve. I can't, I can't stop the, the thing that's, you know, going throughout your whole body and causing a trouble. I can only manage the problems that result from that. Right. So I guess setting expectations with the patients is really crucial here. Well, and for the surgeons, they have to understand what they can and can't do. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So now I'd like to move on to the section um, of the podcast about calcinosis. So calcinosis cutis is um, an intracutaneous or subcutaneous calcin deposit, uh, which is firm and painful. Um, calcinosis can affect the patient's ability to pinch or grasp objects if it's in the fingers. Dr. Brown. What causes calcinosis in scleroderma? Is it like a, is, a high level of circulating calcium at deposits or like an abnormal healing process or injuries or something else? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. Uh, a lot of things have been tried to try to, to manage this, different diets. Um, there, was a tr there was treatments here where they were injecting them to try to dissolve the calcium. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, none of these things are necessarily particularly effective. <clears throat> my, my gut level feeling is that it is somehow related to uh, problems in those tissues. So it happens most commonly, most um, early on is in the fingertips is the most common area. And those are areas that are um, potentially dysvascular, so they're not having adequate vascularity. So that may be a contributing factor. And as you said, it may also be related to trauma. But these are all speculative. Um, I certainly know that the systemic management or the, the ability to, to impact these with systemic treatments or you know, localized injections and things are not necessarily very effective. And again, I'm going to make the comment, I tell patients, and I just operated on somebody with this two weeks ago. Um, we are only managing the symptom. We're not managing the problem. So I'm not correcting the cause of the trouble. I'm just trying to remove some of the calcium. Sometimes it's incredibly helpful and effective. And other times it is just a short-term um, solution. And it really, really varies from person to person. So it sounds like kind of inevitably the disease process is still going on and there will be more calcium deposits sometime in the future. Well, yeah, it's so unpredictable. I've had some patients that you remove them and they don't come back. 
which is, a, I have no idea why that is. And then other people, you remove them and in no time, they seem to be reaccumulating. I wish I could be more uh, certain who would do well. So then I could um, specifically offer them treatment and other, people's, other people not, but it is certainly not uh, predictable, at least not in my hands. Right. Now, turning over to you, Kelly, um, could you share your experience with calcinosis and how you manage it on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, um, I do have it in my fingers, but I'm going to talk about my shin because that's the atypical calcinosis I have. Well, actually, I have it in both legs. But um, so about six years ago, in the and then in, in you know in the area that I have the morphia, all of a sudden I had an open wound. I didn't bump it. Didn't didn't and didn't nothing happened out of the ordinary and it became infected and it was realized then that I had some x-rays that I had calcium that was holding that wound open and it was I had a lot of it in that calcinosis calcification up and down that shin so quite a lot of it and so once that was realized um so dealing with that is then you're dealing with basically daily wound care, do wound care and keeping that wound. And it was, you know, it's a, it was a complex unhealing wound. I'm, I've had that. I still have it. It still isn't entirely healed. And I'll talk about that later, but um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of, and so the greatest challenge daily challenge with that is managing wound care for it, keeping it, keeping it. So wanting it to heal, you know, hoping it's going to heal and keeping it, uh, not in keeping it from being infected because I have had some of that over the years and that is not easy to deal with when you have to go on IV antibiotics and things like that. So yeah, the main goal is to, you know, do the daily wound, uh, not daily, but it, you know, my proper wound care. And I do have a team that ha has helped me with this support over the years, the doctors and wound care specialists and home health care have been very supportive because it's been pretty that's been a challenge and it changes too because it's a changing wound and things were I also um managed pain because it's been was painful um especially post-surgery and since then and if I'm on my feet too much it gets painful so I have to manage some pain that way um I I wear comp compression stockings too to keep you know help with the circulation and I also try to keep my feet elevated when I'm sitting um, I, I still do a lot of exercise. I'm able to get out there. And, and as Dr. Brown was talking about, I do really avoid anything. Like if I think I'm going to hit any bottom part of my leg, like I just avoid it. I, I should have bumpers around me because I do not want to open up anything else because I'm just too concerned about the healing. I if it was going to heal or not. So I'm really quite aware of that. So I am, uh, yeah, looking forward to when it is going to heal and I can go swimming again. <laughs> That would help me a lot. But yeah, it's been quite a challenge just a non-healing wound. And, and because of where it is, like it's right, it's right near the bone too. And it's a heart challenging area and circulation and the scleroderma and the inflammation, who knows what it's, you know, it's a really challenging area. Had a lot of help though and support with it. That sounds incredibly bothersome. <laughs> wow. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you also mentioned that you have a bit of calcinosis in your fingers, which is a little bit more typical of scleroderma. So I'd like to touch on that. Um, does it, does that, um, does the calcinosis in your fingers affect your function at all? Or is that, is that painful or do you have to, yeah, change yeah. anything? Yes. Um, so I have had in the, I have um, digital ulcers, like from ulceration and calcification in my fingers. 
However, I was really fortunate in that um, once I got the, my um, extended healthcare plan to cover sildenafil, that for me in that particular area really helped my digital ulcers. Like in, this, in about half a year, they st I stopped getting them. And then in about after a year, they, they were all healed over. I still have the scarring and I'm really careful. I still get Raynaud's attacks like a lot but I still, that has helped manage my digital ulcers immensely. Like that was a game changer for me. It helped with me. It doesn't help with everybody I know, but for me, it helped with my digital ulcers and the calcification there. So there, there I was fortunate. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's a good tip. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Brown, what should patients do if their calcinosis spontaneously ulcerates like it did for Kelly? Like if it were me, I would probably try to pick at it, but it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> it's painful. <laughs> It, um, I would say, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, it's something for me, when I see patients, I, I review with them what their options are and, and try to figure out how much trouble it's causing them. And if it is causing them lots of trouble, then we can try to remove it in a, in a couple of different ways. Uh, but prior to moving on to that, uh, I, when someone has a digital ulcer, Sometimes it can be due to the calcinosis and sometimes it can be due to the poor vascularity. So I usually try to go down the path of investigating and understanding their vascularity prior to doing anything else. And the reason is, um, you know, as Kelly uh, astutely pointed out, sildenafil works for some people and it doesn't for others. So I try to differentiate Scleroderma is, a, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about, not necessarily so fascinating if you have it, uh, but it can be very, I learned a new word recently during the pandemic, and that is protean. It can be very protean. In other words, it, it affects people very, very differently. Some people it can be very mild and they just have a linear, a little bit of linear scleroderma. And other people can have very, very dramatic troubles. And, uh, when it comes to the vascularity to their fingers, some of it is reactive, which is what you're seeing with Raynaud's disease where the blood vessels are shrinking, where they're contracting and relaxing. And another component is that it is structural. We're slowly getting like a blocked type. And that's what I like to figure out early on is how much is each. And that will help us understand better who will do well with medications such as calcium channel blockers and sildenafil. We used to use uh, nitroglycerin a paste that you can put on your hands. I don't think it's available anymore. Um, and then even a surgery that we can do for that where we go and strip off the, the nerves around the blood vessels. If, the, if in our investigations we find that those things are um, not effective, then we can talk about other ways of revascularizing the hands. But I, I try to understand that first, unless they really have no split, they have no ray nodes, they don't have any trouble with cold temperatures, they just have calcinosis. Then we can talk about whether or not um, <clears throat> trying to remove that would be better or worse. The one thing I find, and I, I'll be very curious to know Kelly's experience, calcinosis, when it first starts to, to develop in your chin, fingers, wherever it is, okay. it's kind of like toothpaste. And if it opens up, it'll kind of squirt out like toothpaste. And then as time goes by, it gets to be very hard, like a, a grain of sand that becomes like a rock. Uh, and I think that 
that will have some influence on how the surgery goes and how sore it is for you and all of those things. And I'd be curious to know what your experience has been, Kelly. Um, when my shin, I never knew I had it like before there's been orthomorphia. And so I guess I only know it as the hard because that's mm -hmm. when it came through. So I never knew the, I've heard of it. I've seen it in people's fingers, like this, the more toothpaste, you know, calcinosis, but I never had that in my leg. It was just hard to start with, which is unfortunately, because that was painful too. And then when they tried to, if you tried to physically remove it, that wasn't happening, my friends. No, <laughs> it's too painful. Right. I'll make one comment. Yeah, so when we do, when I do this, whether it's just a little bit or a lot, it's under, it's under anesthetic block. You can't, you could, it would be cruel and unusual to do it any other way. Yes. Good to hear. So where I was kind of going with that question was, I'm wondering if a patient has a new ulceration, like should they, um, because like, I assume that this is a huge infection risk. Uh, so should they, you know, apply a bandage or should they directly, you know, use antibiotics or what's the approach for that? Again, I guess as a plastic surgeon, uh, I don't worry about wounds that are open as much. Uh, we have lots of people who have wounds, uh, whether they're burns or other types of wounds that we wash with soap and water. So we, we, um, I don't worry about the infection so much often when things are open. That said, if the cause of the ulcer is poor vascularity, then you really do have a risk of infection. Um, so how that is best managed, I would say you keep it clean. Um, you try to keep it warm. You do everything in your power to maximize the vascularity to the area. So taking your medications, calcium channel blockers, sildenafil if, if you're able, and then um, try to um, manage with your rheumatologist or and or hand surgeon if you're seeing someone, uh, what exactly is the trouble and how... Um, you may try to address it, the primary cause of the ulcer. Dr. Brown, when you were referring earlier to assessing, you know, if the ulcer is, has a more of a vascular cause or if it's just purely calcinosis, when those investigations, is it, um, uh, is it just a trial of those medications that you mentioned or is there more tests that you run? <clears throat> so my formal, my formal investigation for those is, a, is an angiogram. It's, a, it's not, a, not a trivial investigation. Uh, sometimes when people are in my office, what I would do historically is I would inject them with a, a long-acting adrenaline-free local anesthetic marking. And if their finger becomes very warm, then that's an indication that there's a reactive component and that they might do well. But it's a, it's a very rough uh, or crude estimate of that. But if you inject somebody and their finger still stays cold, then that's not a good sign uh, because, you know, if I injected your finger, it'll get warm. It'll turn red and go warm uh, because the, the local anesthetic blocks the nerves and allows the blood vessels to dilate. Um, but the, the true test is an angiogram. And could you um, speak a little bit about what, what are the indications that will lead you to say, yes, I will, I will debunk your, your calcinosis? And what does the actual surgery entail? Yeah, there's, I would say it really comes down to the patients. Some patients are very knowledgeable. They know their condition very well. And they say, okay, like if you remove this now and you help me out now, it won't progress as much. 
and then I will defer to their personal experience. Other people, this will be a new thing and they're not sure what to do. And then I will um, negotiate with them about what you know their specific troubles are, what their concerns are. <clears throat> Sometimes it's easier to remove and it will swing the balance between, you know, towards the opportunity of removing it. Other times it will be more technically demanding. So they will need to understand, you know, what, how this may play out. Again, always with the full understanding that this is um, a temporizing measure. Sometimes it's very beneficial in the short term and other times it's more challenging. And what about um, alternatives? Like, is there like lasers that can be used or other things to remove calcinosis? It would be fantastic if there were. I, my, so right now, one of the things that I use, and I, I didn't invent this, it was somebody else, will sometimes use a very high speed burr that actually breaks up the calcium and allows us just to kind of squeeze it out. Uh, so we can make much smaller cuts. The other way is to go in and physically cut it all out. Uh, which often will leave a fairly significant defect, like over your, over the shin, then we could be fairly aggressive and resect that and reconstruct it with other tissue. But over the fingertip, uh, that can be more challenging because you can end up with a, uh, your fingers have quite a bit of bulk between the bone and the skin. And if that bulk is lost, it can make them uh, more sensitive. Right. Okay. I'd like to move on to digital ulcers a little bit. Um, and we've already spoken about kind of Dr. Brown's approach to assessing a digital ulcer. Um, is there any other things that you think need to be mentioned in terms of uh, your assessment? Again, I just go back to um, when anybody has a problem in medicine, I think of it as being like a broken car. You need to know what the problem is first, and then you can come up with your treatment. You know, I, I don't want to have them replace my brakes if I need a new muffler. It's the same thing with something like this. I want to try to provide the patient with an understanding of what their problem is, and then they can have a chance to um, determine, you know, if and what is the best treatment for them um, as, best as, as best as we are able to do that. So I, I like to have a very thorough understanding. And again, I'm going to go and again, I don't know Kelly's experience, but many patients that come to see me with digital ulcers have been having an enormous amount of pain. And what I explain to them, and some of them will have no calcinosis, just ulcers. And I, I will tell them that they're basically having, it's like having a heart attack in your finger. Your finger is dying and it is sore because it's not getting enough blood. And we need to try to figure out if we can do something simple like take medications and avoid the cold or if you have to do something more significant. But I like to have that information so that they have a better understanding of the options available to them. Kelly, you've mentioned how significantly the um, sildenafil has helped your digital mm -hmm. ulcers. I was wondering if, you if you're on any other medications for your scleroderma. I just take some medication for my acid reflux. I was on immunosuppressants, but they didn't work for me. So, right. yeah. Oh, I do take, well, this is a new one, a new added therapy. Um, I do, there is a sildenafil ointment 
that a compound that was made. And actually I do put that around where my wound area is on my leg. And that actually, I think has improved some of the circulation and my other leg too. So yeah, that's new. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah. And can you talk to us a little bit more about what wound care involves? Um, I think as medical students, we don't fully understand exactly what it's like to have a chronic wound and all the daily things that are necessary to help it heal. Um, yeah. So um, while I've had lots of different protocols because I've been dealing with this for quite a few years. Uh, and so, but on a daily, like on a regular basis, every three days, I um, remove the bandage and dressings and I clean, I manage my own wound care basically myself right now because I, I'm, you know, I've been shown how to do it all. And I, I do have people like look at it once in a while. Hey, this is going okay. Or we need to try this up, change up the protocol. Um, so I clean it with saline and then that's helped it, you know, healing and remove any bacteria that's on it. And then I, I do some debridement or sloughing off, you know, trying to clean off any of the slough and any bacteria that might be there. Cause I don't want to have any infection. The whole goal is to keep infection out and to get and promote healing. And then after that, I add, I put a, um, a gel um, to keep it moist and to promote healing. And then I also put on because of, because my wound is, seems to be very susceptible well, because it's been open for so long to infection. So I put an antibacterial um, dressing on a little bit all over it just to make sure I don't have that because I don't like to, don't want to have infection. And then on top of that, I put a bandage. And then, yeah, so the whole goal is to keep it, you know, to manage it, keep it from getting infected and promote healing. Yeah. Right. But it's a very mm -hmm. slow journey and it, it probably takes a lot of patience. Well, I am a patient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, but it, it is. And I have a lot of support. Like I've had so much, I, my the medical team and everyone around me has been really supportive over the years. And because, you know, when I was going through it all, like every two or three weeks, you had to change your protocol because it wasn't working, right? Because it's a non-healing wound, but it is actually healing now. But, you know, it took a long, long time to get through it. Yeah, that sounds really challenging. Um, do you have any other tips for fellow patients dealing with ulcers? Um, that kind of ulcer, um, well, it does help, like I, the compression stockings for sure really help improve these circulation if you have it in your lower limbs, I think. And yeah, keeping it lifted, keep moving. You got to keep moving, keep active, right? Keep it, the blood flowing. That's really important. Other than that, yeah, and just, yeah be patient, um, be determined and, you know, just keep asking for help when you need it. That's, you know, and surround yourself and with a team and supportive team, both your family and friends and medical professionals is what I have been doing. Right. Dr. Brown, from a plastic surgery perspective, do you have any other tips about wound healing? I guess the only thing I would say is, um, just as a generic comment, is that some wounds will heal very well and others will not. And I think that sometimes we can get stuck in a bit of a rut. And, and if things aren't progressing, if you're just not making progress, it's important for us as care providers to reassess if we're on the right path. Um, we make assumptions about how things will go. And uh, sometimes we're wrong. And you need, 
you need to go back to your basic principles and your go back to the beginning and say, well, I'm on, am I on the right path? Do I need to do something different here to make this better? So sometimes you have to reevaluate if it's a um, like an art, more of an arterial wound or if it's a more or from calcinosis, or like that sort of thing, or if you have to biopsy it because it could be like a malignancy, that sort of thing. Yeah, all of those things. But also if you're if you're in a if you find yourself in a rut, you think, well, this will heal and it's not. <clears throat> Maybe you need to have a different approach. So to do all those things, to make sure that you understand the cause of the trouble, why it's not healing but then also then to potentially explore if there are other options. And I think most of the patients uh, or the physicians that are looking after these patients, reconstructing them will not be what they do. But again, if you find that the path that you're on is not leading you to the answer, potentially to send them to somebody who may. That's a good segue to my next question for Kelly, which is, uh, can you please tell us about the plastic surgery that you had for your shin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, I decided to go for the plastic surgery because the wound wasn't healing. And I, I was, it was the, the infections were getting bothersome because I had to go on IV a few times. And yeah, and I, I was, I'll, I'll be honest, it was suggested earlier for me. However, I was reticent, hesitant to go because of all the reasons that Dr. Brown talked about uh, previously is um, I was concerned about the healing. Was it going to heal because of where it is and my circulation and scleroderma? And I was also concerned um, about <clears throat> it, the calcinosis coming back. Like if I do this, am I going to have to go and back and get another surgery? Is it going to have to come through? How do you, you don't, but you don't know these things, right? You just going to go forward. And, and I, I did end, I did end up doing the surgery. So, um, and had a really good team around doing that. So I felt, and plus we tried before I did the surgery, we did all these other therapies, including Dr. Brown mentioned the one that was supposed to dissolve the calcium. I, also, they tried that on my on my leg as well, using the ointment first and then the injections, which were somewhat challenging. I, I did that for like over a year. I tried that like seriously, uh, but it didn't. We thought it was working, but it didn't work. So, so that at that point, I was ready to to go with the suggestion of the recommendation of the plastic surgery. So they removed the calcium up my shin, and that part um, healed pretty pretty well. I did end up with two surgeries, like um, just a month, one and then a month later, only because it was the, the first graft kind of didn't, didn't take to the, where the wound area was, you know, where my, the calcium broke through. And so they redid it. And because it, we learned a lot though, in that first surgery, but that doesn't work for her, you know, for that kind of treatment after post-treatment, change it up. And then it, it did work. And then I have had, had about it, an amazing amount of follow-up after because it was a very challenging especially where the actual initial ulcer was to heal the graft area so I actually had a year and a half follow-up with that plastic surgeon at various clinics like you know sort of weekly and monthly so really thorough and an excellent care and then I've since I've gone on to a complex wound care clinic clinic again and I've, I've got matched up or met a um, a complex wound pair nurse who's actually familiar with scleroderma and that is and, and I've tried different therapies and now it's finally 
I actually, I have to cross my fingers. <laughs> I think it's going to heal like maybe in a month. It's just about there. I just have a bit left. So, and that would be great. I would hope so. Because last time I had a discussion with the nurse about possibility of it not healing at all. And I was going, oh, please, I can't even go there, but it could be, but I'm hoping now, it, but especially with that, the new addition of the sildenafil ointment, I really think that has helped too, because that's pretty new. So I think it is going to heal now. So it was quite, it was quite a long journey, like. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But yeah, I'm praying yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And on a personal level, like how did this affect your life? Like, did you have to take time off work and things? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I see. I said, yeah, it's, you know, I was, I heard someone talking about a, an autoimmune disease taking up about 25% of their life. And I was thinking at the end, you know, it probably does like between everything you manage, you know, and it's like whack-a-mole, like some things come up and then you whack it down or, you know, treat it and then something else comes up. So yeah, it did take up a lot of time. Yeah. But you do what you do, right. You got to want to, I didn't want to have an open wound for the rest of my life. Right. So trying to get back. So yeah, I'm happy with the decision, even though it took so long to heal, it's taking long to heal. Dr. Brown, for non-healing ulcers and infections, surgical debridement is sometimes done. And I understand that amputation also always remains kind of as a last resort option, but I'm wondering how commonly these, these are needed for scleroderma patients. Uh, again, so for me, most of the things that I deal with are in the hand. I do lots of extremity reconstruction as well, but rarely, I'm trying to think, I don't know if I've ever had to do it for people's legs. Uh, so it, um, if the, you know, every person comes in with their own special situation, if they have, they come in and they have painful dead fingers, uh, which sometimes happens, like if they have, as if someone had frostbite, then amputation is uh, an excellent option to be able to allow them to reduce the pain and deal with the dead tissue. Um, otherwise it's something that I, I try to avoid because it has its own shortcomings, obviously. So we, we try to maximize the blood supply to allow healing to occur if that's possible. Right. That's a good segue to my next question about sympathectomy, uh, which is sometimes done for severe Raynaud's as well as digital ulcers. Um, Dr. Brown, could you briefly explain what is digital sympathectomy and what kind of are the patient outcomes from this? So it's an interesting thing. It's something, again, I've done for a long time. Um, and there is significant variability in what people think or what surgeons think, uh, how well it works and if it can be redone. So what the procedure actually is, it's different because sometimes people will get a sympathectomy that is performed up uh, in their thorax, uh, by, by usually by the thoracic surgeons or vascular surgeons where they remove the, the, the sympathetic supply to your extremity. For reasons that are not entirely clear, that doesn't seem to work very well for scleroderma. Um, it seems to work best if you actually go to the blood vessels and remove the little nerves around them. There's, there's some other really complicated anatomical things, but I would make a fairly long cut across the palm all the way across like this, 
where I would go and strip off those blood vessels. And then a second one uh, just over the radial artery before the wrist. <clears throat> now, again, each situation is different and you kind of, I use the angiogram to help me determine how best to do this, but that would be a typical pattern for uh, periarterial, so the proper full name is periarterial sympathectomy. And if a patient has primarily ray nodes as their trouble, it works great. It's really profound, the difference it can make. Once patients start to have structural changes to their blood vessels so that the, they're actually getting narrower and narrower and there's less blood supply to the fingers, then they become less effective. Now, it's my belief that this is an operation that you should probably think is going to be done once. It's not going to be something that you do over and over. It's not so much that it's not fun to do surgery, but I just don't know if the benefit uh, for the patient's warrants doing this over and over. How long does it last in terms of its effects? That varies so much from person to person. Some people, again, if you have primarily uh, a reactive disease, so primarily just Raynaud's type pattern without the ulcers, it can be, I don't want to say permanent, but it can be a dramatic long-standing effect. If you have, you're already starting to get to the point where you have ulcers, I think that it has a temporary effect and that can be anywhere from, you know, a few years to a number of years. And that's probably, that's probably a realistic expectation of what it's going to do for you. I've heard that there's an increasing number of practitioners that are trying Botox uh, as an alternative for this. Uh, do you, what's your experience with this? Well, it's interesting. Um, I'll just make a little, a small segue. Unfortunately, one of my colleagues, a dear colleague, passed away from scleroderma uh, probably about almost 20 years ago now. And she was trying, this was early um, in the days of Botox, and she tried it. I don't think it necessarily helped her too much, but it's been around for quite a while. And um, I never understood it. Like I, from a physiologic point of view, I didn't understand how it would work, but there was some reasonable evidence that it can make a difference. I have never gone down the path of doing it. Not be, giving Botox into people's hands is pretty easy. I have always struggled in doing things that I wasn't sure was had a reasonable chance of helping someone, particularly if they have to pay for it. I, I just, I struggle with that. If people want to have Botox and I can paralyze their face, I'm happy to do it because I know it'll work. Uh, but for things like this, I was always a bit um, reluctant. Uh, that maybe it works great for some people, but I've always just been, because it's something that out of someone's pocket to pay for this, I've been, I've been, been a bit reluctant. So I, I really can't, I don't have a lot of personal experience. I think that the, literature is shifting away from the benefit of Botox. I think that more and more people are finding that it's not very beneficial, but I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm wrong and that it really works great. I'm always happy when something is simple and the risks are low and it works. I think that that is the ideal situation. I just, I, I don't think that Botox is going to ultimately be shown to be that, but again, I, I would love to be proven wrong. Right. Thank you. Um, 
Flexion contractions and joint deformities can also occur in systemic sclerosis. Dr. Brown, are these secondary to the hands being immobilized from the sclerodactyly, or do they occur independently as a separate disease process? I think it probably reflects uh, its part of the process that's occurring with sclerodactyly. Uh, so there's, there's changes in the skin and changes in the position of the fingers <clears throat> and the skin over the, the dorsum of the PIP joint and the tendon becomes incredibly, incredibly thin. And for some patients, actually, the bone starts to stick out. Um, you know, there's an ulcer over the, the dorsum of the joint. And that probably reflects the pressure of the, you know, even in our own fingers, if you flex, if you flex your fingers, you'll notice that the skin over the dorsum of the joint becomes white. And that is because there's increased pressure. And if you have that increased pressure on top of having poor circulation, then that seems to contribute to the trouble. Um, and that's, that's a, and when it happens, it's a fairly dramatic problem. Right. Could you tell us about the surgeries that, that are done for joint deformities and flexion contractions in scleroderma? It's pretty straightforward. There's only one real option for that, and that is to fuse the joint. Uh, because in scleroderma, you'll see patients who have all, what I would call a claw-type deformity, mm -hmm. where they're very, very bent. <clears throat> and it's uh, painful, and you have, a, as I said, you can often have an open joint and wound. So we uh, fuse the joint in a more functional position, uh, and that uh, allows also for the skin to be closed. Um, it's not um, profoundly elegant or sexy surgery, but for the patient, it can make a very, very big difference. So it's, it's just an important part of care of that trouble. I will say though, again, uh, when you asked early on about the challenges of surgery and scleroderma, that's an operation that generally fusing a joint, which I do a lot, um, is very, very successful. The body is very good at knitting bones together, but because of the poor skin coverage and the poor blood supply, they can't, there's, it's the one situation where there's a not insubstantial risk that the bones won't knit together. You won't, they won't heal. And that is a challenge uh, for both the surgeon and the patient. And then you have to try to try to manage it as best you can. Right. Does that involve a second surgery sometimes? Uh, yep. Yeah, sometimes you have to do that. Or sometimes it just takes a long time for the bones to heal. And you just take it as it comes. All right. Thank you. Kelly, you haven't had any of, any of these types of surgeries. <laughs> No, <laughs> that is fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. It's the healing time too, right? You just don't know when you're dealing with scleroderma. That's what I find too. And everybody's different with it too. Mm -hmm. Right. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The uncertainty of it's probably one of the most challenging things about scleroderma. So I guess we'll, we'll wrap up here. Um, is there any other points that either of you feel that we haven't really had a chance to touch on or that you'd like to emphasize? I'll, the only other comment that I will make is that um, I really think it's important for patients, particularly those with pain and digital ulcers, to be thoroughly assessed and to, to try to have these things managed as best as possible. 
one of the challenges um, when you have very bad blood supplies, how do you fix that? So in the heart, you know, we, we they do bypass grafting and angioplasties and all of these things to try to improve your blood supply. Same sort of thing. Um, if you're having trouble with blood supply to your brain, they will go and do a carotid endorectomy. And I think that we uh, need to try to be as creative as we can be to try to do the same for people with scleroderma. The operation, the sympathectomy we've already talked about, and the other operation we sometimes do is to try to get blood into the hand the only way we can. And that was actually backwards through the veins. And that's called arterialization of the dorsal venous system, which is incredibly crazy, but it can really make a big difference. Uh, so patients have less pain, their ulcers heal. But um, again, the duration is unknown. Some people, it seems to have a long-term benefit. Other people, it seems to be shorter. And it is not a trivial surgery. It's not a dangerous surgery, but it is a, it is a real surgery. And um, it's just important for people to understand that that is a potential option um, because, it, you know, it's not, it's not acceptable for people to be suffering at home with pain in their hands. It's just not, it's not okay. Right. And one of our, uh, one of the patients that previously went on the podcast actually had had that surgery, but then it had to be reversed after, I don't know, maybe four or five years. I can't quite remember. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, both of you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I've, I've certainly learned so much. Um, yeah. So thanks again. And yeah. Have a good evening. Thank you so much. And it was very nice to meet both of you. Thank you. I, I learned a lot too. Thank you, Dr. Brown. That was helpful. Um, and yeah, it's always good to have more awareness, I think, of this disease and knowledge is power and share it. And as Dr. Brown said, like, if, if it is painful, like get help, there's people, there's people out there who will help you. Like I have had no problem getting any help and just, you know, be determined. It's a journey. Right. And have a strong support team. That's really good too. Good words, Handel. Please note that the ex opinions expressed on the Sclerodera Education Podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare provider if you have any concerns about your health.